Season three, ladies and gentlemen, of Chewing the Gristle is upon us. We've got a bunch of great guests lined up. We're going to let the good times roll. Are you ready to pound the gristle? We ride. Brought to you by our good friends at Wildwood Guitars in beautiful Louisville, Colorado, and Fishman Transducers of beautiful Andover, Massachusetts. This week on Chewing the Gristle, we have the mighty Pete Thorne. You've seen him with Chris Cornell, Melissa Etheridge. He's all over the internet doing some of the coolest guitar content known to man or beast. This week on Chewing the Gristle, Pete Thorne. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, another installment of Chewing the Doggone Gristle. Greg Koch here with the mighty Pete Thorne, guitar player extraordinaire. You've seen him on stage with Chris Cornell and Melissa Etheridge. You've seen him online t- using f- gear like a farm animal in heat. I dig it. That's a positive <laughs> And th- and that's a positive thing. But most importantly, apparently you were in Oshkosh, Wisconsin last week. What the hell were you doing there? That is all true. I was in Oshkosh doing a vampire musical. And why wouldn't you do that? <laughs> it was it was actually super fun. I've never done anything like that before. And uh, there's like a certain satisfaction to the uh, to, to the work of, yeah, I don't know, like once they push go on that show it just rolls and then you're in it for the next you know whatever hour and and it's like a job well done when you get to the end you know it was really cool it was really fun the songs were really good and um i've just never done anything quite like it so great band how did that all come together uh it's my friend matt beckley actually who i met many years ago he was touring with katie perry playing guitar and um, we met on the set of Taratata, a French television show. <laughs> Taratata. Yeah, I was there playing with. Making me think back, I was better playing with Daniel Powder and uh, Roger from uh, Super Tramps. You know, he's like a legend. And and they were doing a duet of uh, two of us by the Beatles together, as well as one of Daniel's songs. And I was playing guitar on that. Anyway, that's a long winded story. But Matt Beckley was there. That's how I met him. And so. He was uh, MDing this this musical, and so I said, "Sure, I'd love to do that." That's Crazy. it in, in Oshkosh, or was it just? Is it? It's on tour, and Oshkosh was just one of the places it was at, or no? It was most definitely in Oshkosh proper. Um, there's some folks that were from there actually that are, that that were putting it on, and uh, they, uh, this this woman Carrie, who's an actress and stuff, she, that's her hometown, I do believe. But she uh, she'd lived in L- L.A. for a number of years and made all these connections with people. And now she lives back there, so that's how that's the Oshkosh connection. That, I that's crazy. I know, and I believe what they were doing is put is doing it to like they had a great venue there, a beautiful venue which she actually owns, I do believe. And oh, nice. Uh, yeah, and so that was a big part of why Oshkosh. But then, you know, they want to take it big and go to Vegas or some, somewhere else, you know. So uh, so we'll, we'll see what happens. But it was it was really fun. Man, I haven't been anywhere in, like, two years, which is so weird for me. Right. So, and, yeah, and, you know, we've got our rooms. I see you got a great room there. Like, we've got our little spaces that we've been hanging in. And uh, and it's awesome, but it's also like I'm going insane a little bit. So I got out and did that. And then a few weeks ago, I also went to Florida for a minute to do a gig. And it was just really um, it was good for the soul to get out a little bit. So It's kind of a double edged sword, though, isn't it? It's like you, you, you want to get out, but then you get into an airport and you're for me, it was like I got into airports like, man, I don't miss this part at all. Right. 
Exactly. Yeah, you can you the, nailed the it. Actual work and going places and seeing people is all well and good, but just yeah. you know, and it's and of course, like every flight that I've been on thus far has either been canceled, delayed, or just some drama. You know what I mean? It's really, but yeah. but hey, I'm not I'm not going to whine, Pete. I'm just saying, it's just like it's that aspect of traveling. I think when you're doing it all the time, you're just kind of oblivious to it. But then when you haven't done it for such a long time. And all of a sudden, you're kind of thrown back in the frig, and you're like, "Oh, that's right." <laughs> it makes me feel good that you say that. You know that you you you're uh, you know you're commiserating with me on this because it's just like that was my exactly what you're talking about was my feel. Um, it's kind of a lot all at once. It's like a lot when you've been you know, and and you're like, ah, just dealing with all this, and then you have like super fun time maybe at some point during the trip as well, and it's like, oh, this is. Ah, this feels great, you know, like, and then you're like, ah, I'm really stressed and I want to be home. And then it's like, this is great. And it's like a lot. Yes. <laughs> you know? It's weird, it's man. Lot. I mean, we're, we're all a little like head cases after all this time, you know, but, um, but it, long story short, it's great to be out and, and, and place like felt really good to be on a stage again and do any, like, like that was like putting on a pair of old shoes. I was like, am I going to remember how to do this? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it was great. I was concerned uh, because I had been sitting down all during COVID and playing. I was like, holy shit, can I play standing up again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I had to practice that. I actually had to practice it. Yeah. You know what? And then you're like, this is this, you know what I mean? You're kind of out of shape with actually having this weight around your show. You know, it's just, yeah, again, not to whine. It's just adjusting. Of course, you're out of shape and you're um, maybe playing not as good standing up as sitting down is like 100 times beyond what the rest of us can do. Ah! So you're all good. (laughs) Uh, You're not going to get away with with, uh, me not praising you for your skills during this. I'm telling you, it's going to happen at least a few times. (laughs) Oh, well, likewise, my friend. We're all such fans. I'm a big fan of your activities as well. So I'll tell you what, it's all good. Thank you. I was telling somebody you did a video for my signature guitar uh, for Wildwood. And I was like, it should be his signature guitar. Look at this video. <laughs> it's just like, oh, my God. This is so great. So thank you for that. Oh, Appreciate pleasure. It. It's a great guitar, actually. You know, I've got a bunch. Oh, they, they sent a bunch of sirs. Uh, I got to do some videos. That's that's one of the things that's been cool for me as far as the uh, the uh, the covid COVID hours, as my son calls it. We're in COVID hours. But, uh, they, they send the guitar. Wildwood sends me guitars, and then I unpack them, and, you know, I play them for live streams and whatnot, and then I pack them back up and send them back. And, you know, the, the one saving grace for all of us, I think, as, as musicians is that even though, of course, we can't go out and do gigs in person, people are certainly buying gear like never before. And if you have any kind of tangential you know, fingers in the pie, as it were, of some of these uh, gear things. I mean, that part of it has been quite robust. Am I right? Absolutely, my friend. Yeah. I mean, I always say that <clears throat> music business is kind of been trending in the direction anyway of like people not buying. It. I mean, they, they they spend money on concert tickets or T-shirts, but they don't, you know, nobody's I mean, who's making money off streaming? Right. It's ridiculous. Right. So, um and now take away the live aspect and now you've really got problems. But the one place that, you know, I, I, I say like I end up more in the musical instrument end of the business than the music business. And, you know, I, and which is kind of where I started. It's funny because I used to work in music shops and I used to teach in music stores and stuff. And it's like that combined with playing has always been part of what I do. And um, the thing about gear is that it's still something physical that you have to 
plunk down some change for and purchase. And so it's like, for me, it's, it's been a way of, uh, for, for sure. I mean, it's like, you know, I work, I make these pedal videos. This is what I do. And, and as well as other aspects of, you know, being in that end of the business and it's, yeah, I mean, it was busy as hell, man, like 2020, I almost feel guilty saying it, but I mean, being in our little rooms and stuff like that, I, I, it was so much work to do. Right. Um, which it was just an accident, you know, right. like and it's, it's just, and it's fun. It's fun to it do. It is fun. Totally fun and rewarding. And I mean, I see how you do it too. You know, the way you plug in something, you're just like, let's see what this thing does. And then you, you've got that crazy skill of yours. And then you're like, it's amazing. Cause it's so inspiring when you see somebody with an instrument or a, a factor and they're going off doing their thing, you know? And, um, I, I mean, many you and many other folks you know i'll see something and i'll be like it's musical uh, folks have gotten so good at making these things now you know like videos right. and things and recording themselves and that it's i feel like i'm just watching a, a musical performance or a, the best case you know demonstration of what this thing does but when the context of music which you do so beautifully you know so well thank you you know i so i love I love the fact that when you put together a video, it's like you come up with a piece of music and it's like a fully produced, it sounds awesome. Like you create this piece of music in like a recording context, you're playing along with it and you layer this thing and just the quality of it is so good. I mean, I mean, the, the playing course is great, but, but the skill level of just technically putting all that shit together. I mean, how, were you always kind of, you know, studio savvy, camera savvy, that kind of stuff? Or, or did you have to learn the hard way? Uh, the camera thing came like eight months ago. (laughs) I I only recently got proper lighting and like, and you know what? I always, I railed against it for years because I was like, I'm just really not that interested in this part of it. Like the lighting and then everybody's videos and stuff start looking so good. And then, all right. I kind of begrudgingly learned about some color grading and about cameras and, and, uh, and lighting stuff. And then lo and behold, like with most things technical, I start to enjoy it, like on a hobby sort of level. It's like, oh, this is kind of fun, actually, like get kind of into, the, you know, bettering them. So, so now I, I actually really like it. The audio mixing and, uh, you, you know, proper audio recording and all that stuff. I've long been interested in that. I mean, since I pretty much, I mean, I can remember getting my first four track in the 80s or whatever and being like, this is really interesting. Like, how I, I, I even remember, you know, going back to like, uh, listening to music when I was a kid, it was still uh, LPs and cassettes. And then I could, you know, I'm old enough that I remember when CDs came out and I heard the very first song I ever heard on a CD was uh, the brothers in arms. Oh yeah. Record by dire straits. Um, by dire straits. And so that uh, beginning of so far away from me comes in That's the first thing I ever heard on digital, like on a CD. And the guy cranked it up in this hi-fi store I was in and there was no noise. You know, it was like there was no record scratch or whatever, you know, no tape hiss or anything. And I was like, that riff came in of Knopfler playing that riff. I was like, Oh my God. Like, (laughs) you know, and then, you know, since then we've learned that the converters and all that stuff weren't great back then a lot, but I just remember being fascinated by that. And then also at the time, like buying the best, you know, Maxell metal cassettes or whatever, and trying to get the hottest level when I would record my music from LP to tapes, you know, without noise and distortion. So I was like always into that stuff. Like even when I was even before recording and playing music. So fast forward kind of to the early nineties and I got in a band in LA and they had one of those, uh, Akai 1214 machines. 
that I don't know if you remember those, but it looked like a great, it was a mixer with a, with, and it recorded on like beta tape. Uh, it looked like Betamax tape, really, um, like a VHS style, but the, the, the beta size. And uh, that's what I learned how to record on, really, was with that band and using that um, 12-track recorder. And, uh, yeah, and about compression, EQ, and all that stuff. And then I went from there, got into it. So. I, you know, I couldn't help but thinking about when you mentioned that song, So Far Away. You know, I saw, I've always been a huge Knopfler fan. Um I, I've got a few of the solo records. I, I guess my I, I wasn't as totally immersed. You know, of course, you know, by the time you get older, you're 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 not really I don't know. You, you just are not as much of a fan as you were when you were younger, you know, for whatever reason. At least I am from I'm a little fickle in that regard. Uh, but um, but Mark Knopfler was opening up for Bob Dylan and I went and, and, and saw the show and what was interesting about it is that, you know, Knopfler's way of approaching a show is 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 kind of anti-rock in a lot of ways. He's all about the tunes, which is all well and good. He's got a lot of Celtic instrumentation. And he did this one tune, the Sonny Liston tune, where he, he, he's got kind of a snotty tone and he's playing. Uh, but it's almost like the exact opposite of, of what the intuition would be of doing a solo. It's like he started like maybe here and only went down in terms of intensity. And so it was just odd. I was like, well, that's interesting. <laughs> to give you an idea of, of, of what, why I thought of it when you mentioned that song is that so far away he closed with it. And that rocked so hard. I mean, of all the Dire Straits songs, you know what I mean, you could think of, that's not really the most rocking one, but that tune rocks so hard at the end, you're like, oh my God, thank God he's doing a tune. And then as soon as you heard him break into that song and he closed with it, it's like, this this could fill stadiums all over again. You know? <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. But it was just so interesting. It's like, if that's the tune that's rocking so hard, you could just tell the, what the rest of the show was like, but it, it was fascinating. It's interesting because we forget that these guys at that time, like we almost think about them like in current, you know, and we think, oh, Knopfler, he's like elder statesman sort of. And yeah, I could picture him playing, you know, like the type of show that you're talking about I'm doing now. I saw them in an arena in like 85 or 86 or whatever. Yeah, doing money for nothing. And it was like, and he was a young dude back then. And that was the pop hit of the day or whatever. It's like, it's hard to think about it like that. Like, you know, ZZ Top, the same thing. When I think about those guys, you know, I was t- talking about yesterday on my show, I was talking about, uh, I saw them on the El Loco tour. Same in, here. Uh, I saw them in 82. Did you? Yeah. Milwaukee, 82. Milwaukee County Arena or Milwaukee. Uh, was it the auditorium or the, it was the arena. Yeah. Okay. So, so I would have been about 11 and uh, I, I was, I remember being there. I had good seats on the floor and I was up real close, kind of on dusty side. But I remember that there was like, 5,000 dudes that look like bikers there, right? That's what the crowd looked, you know? And I was like, wow, you know, and I was at this show and it was totally cool and I really enjoyed it. So 5,000 or so people, it was a small crowd for that venue, for that arena. And uh, a couple of years later, 84, I go back and see them on the Eliminator tour and it's 14,000 teenagers, you know? And I was like, oh my God. I remember being struck at like 13 years old. Like these guys just totally reinvented themselves as a band in the MTV era with the videos and the stuff. And I, that blew me away that they, through the decades, I was like, wow, they just bought themselves another, I was fully aware of that, right, you know, right, like right, seeing right. that and that, but, but they were still young guys then. I mean, it was like, you know, they'd only been a band at that point, 82, we think, you know, it's like, oh, it's easy top. They've been around. No, they'd been around 10 years or, or maybe a little more, right? 70, yeah, they 69, were, they 70. were 30 something then. You know what I mean? You're like, yeah. And at that time, we were like, God, they're so they're so old. They're, they're- <laughs> <laughs> they were the current 
pop dudes of the day. You know, they were those little blues band from Texas or whatever, but they were the they did just reinvented themselves. So that stuff fascinates me in thinking about, you know, how that all you know, I, <laughs> just I, plays out. I, I've talked about this in the last couple of, uh, I was talking about this with Vernon Reed the other day when I was talking to him for, for the chat. And we just, what was interesting is that, that we opened up for ZZ Top. Uh, at this Summerfest, you probably played Summerfest in Milwaukee down by the lakefront, right? So they, because of COVID, so, yeah. they switched it to um, like three consecutive weekends in September. It usually runs for 10 days, the end of June, uh, July, but because of COVID, they've changed things. So anyways, as we were driving in, Living Color was playing and they sound unbelievable. I mean, Corey sings better now, or even in Vernon's words, like he sings better now than he did back in the day. He, he just sounded unbelievable. So we were like, wow, God, that's that's awesome. And then ZZ Top comes out. Now, again, I'm a huge ZZ Top, a huge Billy Gibbons fan. Um, but I've known this about them for a while, is that because I remember when we played at the Crossroads Festival years ago, the, the very first one down at the, the Cotton Bowl, so the Saturday show at the very end, was ZZ Top was the headliner, and then Clapton and Jeff Beck were going to sit in with ZZ Top. So everyone's really excited. So we were all in this kind of, uh, in like the announcer's booth at the Cotton Bowl, and um, they were pumping in, you know, monitors, but we were hearing the monitor mix, right? And the monitor mix was, all of a sudden we're here like, like, and he's like, He's singing along with, you know, it's canned. He's he's lip syncing, so we're we're, oh. we're hearing him sing his actual voice singing along. And we're like, what is that? And then we hear this voice going one, two, three, four, change. That was for Dusty to know to go, dum dum dum. You know what I mean? And it was just like, oh. <laughs> I mean, I I get it. But so then yeah. fast forward to you know. September of this year, obviously Dusty's died, you know, were they even going to play to begin with? Yes, they're going to continue on. And they come out and they start playing and I can tell right away that he's lip syncing, you know, and then and then all of a sudden it wouldn't it wouldn't be and he'd say something like, hey, Milwaukee, you know what I mean? Or in a certain part of a song. And then, you know, and then there were certain other things that were canned. And and part of me was like, OK, I get this. I, I get the, you know, the civilian you know, no disrespect. I don't. I don't use that as like an ostentatious term. But you know, people that aren't involved with the music business who 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 aren't aren't aware of this type of stuff. Uh, for them, they're going out and they're seeing their legacy artists. They're up there playing. It sounds great. Everyone's having a good time. The band gets to perform. It's they're representing their music and their catalog in a way that is respectful of their history, people love it, love is in the air. For me, as a musician, I'm horrified. You know what I mean? I'm just like, oh, because I'm thinking, I just saw Living Color, they can still play. You know, the Stones are out, they're still playing. I mean, you know, they have a couple extra singers, but they're not playing with them. And there just seems to be this thing where people play with ancillary tracks, and yeah. and again, I understand it, but to me, it's just kind of I hear that little thing, that little theme from The Price Is Right, going bum 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 bum. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. What are your, what are your I, thoughts point, about that kind of activity? I have I have a similar feeling. I mean, at some point, okay, like the the concept of slates and tracks and stuff. I mean, this thing we just did in in uh, Wisconsin. I mean, that's a you know, like I say, they sort of push play at the beginning of the show and then you play and there's some stuff on tracks. It was a three piece band. So there's guitar, bass, drums, but then there's keys and the keys were, you know, largely or, you know, sort of ancillary, whatever other noises and things are on the tracks. 
but everybody's playing live otherwise. But the concept of slates and in-ears and stuff, like this is all stuff, you know, I'm not a fan of, first of all, of slates and clicks and stuff. I want, you know, I, it's just like the, the way the business has evolved. This is a little bit of a different discussion. So I'll bring it back around for a second. As far as like the legacy artists doing the, the track thing, I, I don't like it. I mean, I do have a, you know, you know, it's, 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 I have the same feelings as you, where it's just like, if you're going to go out and you're going to charge that for the tickets, but you can't, I just don't feel good about it. I don't know. I don't, I don't feel good about it. It's one thing if it's, you know, it's just full Millie Vanilli. They lost a Grammy over it. Right. You know, it's, you know, and now it's become like the norm and it's, um, yeah, I'm a little bit, I'm of that era where it was like, it, it just wasn't acceptable or cool. I mean, you remember like Ashley Simpson on... Uh, oh, Saturday Night Live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Career Ender, right? With that event, right? And, uh, and you know, the, and Millie Vanilli, Career Ender. So, and now it's just become sort of the norm and the ticket prices are higher than ever. So I guess I don't feel good about it. Uh, but... Uh, so beyond that, uh, if it's a pop artist and... Um, there's tracks that's become like, you know, routinely, if I go see a show in LA these days, it's like, there'll be two people on stage or three people on stage, you know, where there's like somebody with a computer, they're maybe playing bass, you know, and then there's a drummer and a singer and everything else is coming out, you know, uh, through, through, you know, and that's just kind of like the norm and the kids don't, the, the young people watch it. They don't care. You know, they're like, they're cool with it. And the singing's still live, but there's just a lot of stuff on tracks. Well, I'm kind of okay with that. Cause that's like modern what and budgets are lower and it's like, they're touring with fewer people. And if everybody's having a good time, cool, but it's, yeah, it's when you get these great artists that, I'm not saying new people aren't great, but I'm saying the legacy artists, the folks that we, you know, you think, oh, of course, you know, we're going to go see this band. They're going to be singing and they're not. I guess I have an issue with that. Um, and I, I also I mean, how do you feel about like slates and clicks and like, I mean, it's that because that's just common now in the pop world where you got somebody in the ear going chorus two, three, four, and all that kind of stuff in yeah, here. Because that's what. To, to, well, you know, I, what, know. I guess I, I kind of make the. You know, I mean, not to get too philosophical about it, but it's just, it's, you know, I, I always like to talk about, you know, when you see the stuff back in the day, you know, like when, you know, Hendrix going through a crowd, carrying his own guitars, you know, leaning one yeah, yeah. against the amp and, and those amps would go through regular baggage. I had, you know, I've read things where it's like, you know, there it comes, the Marshall, you know, coming down baggage claim, you know. And, and then there'd be, you know, wires, you know, he'd have his fuzz face and the wah and the univibe. And it was just, it was a mess. And it was like, yes, this is glorious. And, and just all that kind of stuff. We're just in 82 when we, when we saw ZZ Top, it was like Marshall's on stage. They had the moves down, but other than some, you know, some pretty, you know, sparse lighting. I mean, there weren't lasers and God knows what else. It was just bare bones. And plus the whole thing about that then is that the, the live version you couldn't wait to hear how are they going to pull that shit off live because there's only three of them yeah you know what i mean there's all these right. other, and so the live version became this this other extra thing that was another art form in and of itself and i think that things have gotten so yeah. commodified that um every you know the consumers of the mindset well if that doesn't sound like the record i'm i'm not getting what i paid for you know what I mean? There's that. And, and, and it's not their fault, per se. You know, it's not the fault of people for not, you know, wanting to appreciate another idiom of, you know, consuming that music in a slightly different way. But it's just 
I think everything with the music industry, you know, moved in that direction where, you know, let's how far can we lower the bar to make sure <laughs> to make sure that the lowest common denominator has been has been slaked. You know what I mean? But I but I still feel that like there's the breakouts of every generation where you get your Amy Winehouse oh, yeah, or your absolutely. Jack White. No doubt. And they're just raw as hell. And it's great, you know? And you know it's a real, you know, so it's like it's just become it's just this big mishmash of stuff now, I guess. But I I feel the same way about the old like I'm really fascinated by the dawn of the concert era of the, you know, really we think, oh, this has been going on forever, but like shows weren't anything until like you know it was like like i was to the beatles at shea stadium they were you know playing through the pa where it's like and on fifth base we've got you know, exactly <laughs> you know it was like that that was the the pa they were using and so it sounds like hell and you know the two things that i always hear about uh uh beatles shows were <laughs> that you couldn't hear the band because everybody was screaming so loud and it smelled like pee because everybody was playing right. the band <laughs> <laughs> like, honestly, anybody that's ever seen the Beatles, there was a great thread about it a while, a while ago on the gear page, but who saw the Beatles live? And a bunch of people chimed in. With it was that. like, everybody kind of had the same experience. <laughs> so, Screaming in urine. Anyway. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, Screaming in urine. That, that so, should be exactly. a Beatles, Beatles tribute band. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start it. I, let's do it. I want to be right here. Um, but but yeah, I, I think that uh, that era is so fascinating because by around so you got that going on, and then you have to say you got Hendrix with like the Marshalls on the on the tarmac that you've seen, like the pictures of the outside of you know no road cases or anything, and uh, and you know the playing. I mean, he was so fascinating to me because of his like the arc of a show. I saw some live show that was shot a few months before his death, and I believe it was in, like in Atlanta or something. But that particular show. The first few songs, they're kind of not on and they're trying to find their groove, you know, but it's just like whatever, like they don't care. And then all of a sudden it gets you feel the energy of about the fourth or fifth song and it gets amazing. And it's just like it, didn't, it was just like so cool, like in that respect. And they were really playing and exploring space. And and uh, so so but anyway, with the technical stuff by about 72 or 73, I guess, you know, Grateful Dead, maybe with the wall of sound and the big PA they developed and stuff. And you start to yeah, we need more stuff. We need mixers. We need PA. We need power. And by 73 or 74, you're seeing like Aerosmith with proper desks and big old stacks of PA. And it's just that was brand new. <laughs> that. And, you know, so I started going to shows maybe around 80, 81, something like that. And that was my first, um, you know, so it's just like eight years after all that, really. And it's this new era of like, you know, the arena concert experience. And it's, it was brand new and fascinating. And it all just developed, you know. So all the stuff that we're seeing now with clicks and slates and stuff on tracks, and that's just, it's just evolving, I guess, you know. And it's like... Um, you know, I don't know who knows what it'd be like in, in, I, man, I played a show a while ago. Uh, it, it was a, it was a corporate kind of thing with, with the band that I was playing with. And, uh, before the show was a, uh, like everybody was wearing headphones and they were wireless, but there was no sound coming through a PA. And it was, it was like a, uh, we call it like a, I don't know what the hell it was like soundless dance party or something. So everybody's like grooving and stuff, but the room was silent because oh. everybody had headphones. And it, it was well, so like a insane. Nam booth. Some of those booths at Nam where people are like, you know, yeah, yeah playing, shredding and you can't hear a damn thing. Yeah. It was, you know, they're all just like, it was like, like literally like 150 people, like just grooving out and everybody dancing and stuff. But there was no sound in the room. Like what the hell is that? Like, but are they just going to start beaming it into our brains soon? <laughs> like, yeah, there's no, 
no need for PA, you know. Anyway, that's insane. So I, I, I remember when you were when you were talking about the um, you know the, the Beatles at Chase Stadium. Uh, someone I, I forgot where I read it or where I heard it, but when when Cream played at uh, Madison Square Garden, they lowered the boxing mic to the stage. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> so they had their stage volume, but it was going through the place because they lowered the boxing mic. Oh my God. That's insane. <laughs> I bet that helped a lot. Oh, I bet that was great. <laughs> hey, you make me think Queen is a great example of a band because they were one of the first ones with Bohemian Rhapsody to do anything with tracks because they had to, to, to do, you know, but the whole way they did that was so cool. And they were a band that when I, I watched it, because it's interesting you say I was the band I was playing with uh, at, the, at the thing where they had the silent dance party was the ultimate queen celebration, which is Mark Martell, the guy that does, uh, you can sing exactly like Freddie Mercury is amazing. So they've got this great band doing all queen. So I was subbing with them. Um, so you make me think of queen, but in, in learning the, the, the set for them, and I was going back and watching all this little queen, great concerts and stuff. And I'd forgotten like how they would attack a show was so like they were almost like punk rock energy about it. The way Freddie would just like jump on the piano and lay into stuff. And he didn't always sing the same way twice every time, you know, he melodies and, but it was so bitching like with his, their energy, you know, for, for just being four guys up there and the way they would just attack a show with that complex music that was, you know, it wasn't, it was not sloppy rock and roll, but it, they would play it with this punk intensity almost live. It was so cool. Yeah. And in that same yeah. regard, you know, I, I guess the who would be another one where they were the first ones, you know, when they do Bob O'Reilly or uh won't get fooled again. And I would imagine that was on tape, right? They had to have like a reel to reel thing and then pump that through. You can hear the, like on, uh, um, the kids are all right. When they have that, that footage, you hear the thump, thump. Thump, da, da, and then they go into it. But uh, can you imagine how loud Keith Moon's earphones must have been? Must have just been. And the fact that <laughs> the fact they got him to wear them is amazing to me. Like, if there's one drummer I would think that you couldn't restrict to a click or some sort of like, hey, you need to come in when this happens. It'd be like, yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the fact that he was the guy is amazing. It is. It, I, yeah. I like how they just taped the yeah. shit out of him. They just they had it taped all over his head so he wouldn't come off. But good Lord. <laughs> yeah. Yes. yeah, amazing. The old yeah, rock I love- rollers. Oh, my God. There's a great scene. I, I remember on that Maximum R&B. might be from Private Leads or something, but it's a, it's a snippet from uh, – there was a video uh, – that was out called maximum R&B. And I remember seeing like where it was the, the era where I think it was from, I believe he was wearing the white jumpsuit, the SG and everything, right. you know, the moment where Keith is just back there, like they're trying to start a song or something. And he's like losing his mind behind the drums. And Pete, Pete just like reels back and slaps. Him. <laughs> <laughs> he, kind of, he comes to, and then he gets together, he gets behind the drums and starts the song and you get the feeling this is just a regular occurrence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You definitely get the feeling that those guys were, were no strangers. Strangers to, to slapping each other around a little bit, as the case may be. Yeah, it was all good. Yeah, <laughs> so funny. So, tell me a little bit about you're you're from Canada. You're from Edmonton. So, so how did you? When did you decide? I'm was it because you, know, you went to GIT too? Was it that was that the impetus of make you going to LA or what was what were you always planning to to get out of Dodge as it were? Um, from fourteen or so. 
I thought, okay, this is what I want to do. Now I faltered a little bit when I was maybe 16, 17, my dad wanted me to go to college and, you know, take that being a professional musician in a city like Edmonton. Um, luckily I had a few really great role models that sh- uh, I was showing that it was possible. Like even on, the, on a, that local level in, a, in that city, um, that, uh, there was a, a teacher of mine named Terry McDade that was really instrumental in giving me the, uh, you know, the confidence that I could do this. And um, so when I was going through a faltering phase, I remember him telling me, you know, you're really good at this. This is your thing. Like I can tell your heart's in it and you should pursue it. Like, this is what you should do. Like, and I listened to him. And so I got back on track and, and, uh, and, you know, uh, 19 headed to GIT. But I remember the first time when I really had, I was like uh, 14 or so. And I was home from uh, school uh, at lunchtime, having my lunch, eat my sandwich or whatever. And I was flipping through the MI GIT brochure that, uh, that I'd sent away for through the mail, you know, and I remember <laughs> it. yeah. Looking at the pictures of Joe DiOrio and, you know, like all these great guests that would be there and, you know, uh, different, um, different players, Alan Holdsworth and Eddie Van Halen and, you know, different people that would come Larry play. Carlton. Uh, yeah. The whole thing. <laughs> totally. And I thought I've, I got to do this. This is what I want to do. And I said to my mom, I'm going to go to the school. This is what I want to do. You know? And she was like, well, okay. I think you should do that. If that's what you want to do that, you know? And, uh, and th- so that's what happened. So I went at 19, ended up in LA, went to school for a year, graduated and didn't know what the hell to do. And I ended up joining a band that, um, is the band that I mentioned had the Akai 1214. Um, and I got these, these were some great players that I got in a band with at a really young age. So I would be 20, just about turning. I was 20 when I joined, because I remember we did some gigs in clubs and I was too young to, to be in the bar. So I would, they were all in their late thirties and I was in, I was 20. I was like the, you know, the novelty in the band, the young kid. And I would like hang out in the bar after sound check because I didn't want to leave and then not get back in. We wouldn't be able to play the show. So, um, so anyway, uh, we ended up writing and recording about 50 tunes with that band. And it was Frank Symes, who a uh, great guitar player that uh, has played with Roger Daltrey and Stevie Nicks and was Don Henley's MD and was also playing with Mick Jagger at the time doing the, uh, the Wandering Spirit solo album around 91. So he, so he had all these great gigs. So I was obviously enamored with him and, uh, you know, blown away with all the stuff he was doing. Jen Condos was on bass. She's played with a host of people, including Henley back then in that sort of late eighties, early nineties period. And a fellow named Jimmy Volpe on drums. And, um, they kind of took me under their wing and taught me, you know, a lot. And, and I was, I was a decent, you know, I could, I could play and I was obsessed with guitar at that, you know, as that young age where I was like 20 and just like working on my chops and doing stuff, but they had that knowledge and that, and they also taught me, um, they wanted to do this original band, but they were all pro musicians that were session, you know, playing sessions and doing, you know, uh, the side guy thing and stuff like that. And so I saw that side of it too. And how that they, like, I always remember Frank, um, uh, we would play in, in Pasadena and stuff on the weekends. We would sometimes go do cover gigs and play stones and, you know, Bowie and all kinds of music just for fun. And to get good as a band, we'd throw our originals in too, into the set, uh, while we were recording demos and trying to get a deal. And then these guys would take off and go on tour sometimes for a couple of weeks with Don Henley or something. So here I'd be, I'd be playing a gig in Pasadena. Frank would be humping in the PA, you know, setting it up for 60 bucks a person a night. And he would play guitar and sing and he would play like no different than if he was in an arena. You know, he, he, whether he was in front of three people or, or 10,000 people, he would play the same. 
and not take it lightly, you know? And he just had so, so much joy and, and, you know, look what I'm doing. He had this young kind of kid like energy and it's kind of like you do. I mean, your, your energy never changes when you play. You've always got this thing. That's, that's what it's supposed to be. Right. Like your jazz, just like when you were 12 years old, like, look how cool, you know, this is fun. And that energy should always remain like that. And I learned that from those guys that it was like, you don't ever play different, you know, like, Oh, this gig sucks. Right. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. No, 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 no. We're playing music and it's fine. We're lucky, you know? So they really taught me that. So it was, that was the instrumental. I feel like in anything that came after that, that, that they were the first ones I fell in with. Cause you know, it could go another way. Like I could have met some, you know, some, people that were negative or dark or like, you know, into drugs or like who knows what. Right, so I sure. just got, you know, they were more like these real pros that set me on a path. Um, so, so that's that story. And then I just kind of went from there. We worked on that band for a number of years and eventually we got signed in uh, to Sony in Japan because Frank was, uh, he's half Japanese. He grew up in Japan uh, until he was 14, could speak fluent Japanese and English as well with no accent in either language. So we had this going for us. When we couldn't get signed in the States, he translated a few songs into Japanese and sang them in Japanese. And then we got the deal on Sony over there. And yeah, they were intrigued, the label, because it was like, hey, we got a band here that can sing in Japanese and English. And, you know, you know, this this great lead singer. So, so it was cool. And that was my first, hey, now I'm a, a pro musician, I guess, you know. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But it, but it was a long road of like paying dues and, you know doing whatever I could to kind of stay afloat for the next five years until we got that deal and then uh, got signed. And um, once that ended, uh, I ended up kind of different original bands looking for sideman work and that all kind of one after the other, one after the other until the, the through the two thousands and gigs started getting a little better tours started getting a little better, you know, a little more pay and that stuff to the point where around no six oh seven. I got a gig with Jewel and then Chris Cornell and then Don Henley and Melissa Etheridge and others after that. Right, 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 right. So I mean, <laughs> yeah. it must have been a bit terrifying as a nineteen year old going to to L.A. and you know, and GIT is that's kind of you know, it's an interesting part of town, but you got to keep your wits about you and so on. So, how was that adjustment? <laughs> you know, it's cool because I I was fortunate as a kid to get to travel a lot. Um, so I was uh, like, uh, my, my parents were great. They took my sister and I places and we got to kind of, you know, get out and see the world. And I had taken a trip when I was maybe 13 or 14 and gone to kind of the Mediterranean and, uh, like ended up, um, let's see, we flew to London and then we went to Italy and got on a boat in Brindisi and we went to Crete and Greece and Turkey. And you know, I remember going to Israel and going to the West bank and going to, uh, you know, all, all kinds of, of crazy places and, and tatting out with my sister that they, they, they were kind of lax with what they let us do back then. Cause here I am this 13 year old Canadian kid, you know, but I can remember walking around a lot on my own and going some places and, you know, hanging out. So I, I was, I'd been, you know, all over the place by the time I, I moved to LA and we'd been to California a few times and I, I kind of knew what to expect, but yeah, for sure. It's an adjustment, you know, but I don't remember, I was like, this is what I want to do and I'm going to do it. You know, and uh, I, I moved into a one bedroom apartment with three guys, you know, and did that for six months, got a little more space six months after that, moved into a slightly bigger place, but it was a struggle sleeping on a futon for the first few years and no furniture. And just like, you know, I remember clearly rolling pennies and nickels for rent money one month. I remember living on $13 one week, like you know, tuna fish and some wonder bread and like whatever I could get from a store. 
And uh, my dad had some, some uh, unfortunately, some business issues and stuff right around that time that I moved. So I grew up fairly, you know, like middle class, upper middle class kind of upbringing pretty, pretty well. And then my dad was having some problems, like, unfortunately, which was really crappy for our family and stuff. But I had moved and now I'm in L.A. and I was you know, they helped me with what they could. Um, but I, I, I knew I was on my own after a year or two and I had to sink, it was sink or swim, you know? So it was like all about whatever I could do to, <laughs> so, but I was, my heart was so in it, you know, I didn't want to, there was no plan B there was never, which I don't necessarily recommend, but it was just like, I didn't care about anything else, but I just wanted to play music, you know? So what kind of stuff were you into back then music wise when, when you first went out to LA and how did that morph over time? That's an interesting question because I, um, I'd been really into in through the eighties when I started, first started listening to music it was all about the who and the Beatles for me. And then I made a, f- uh, a friend that exposed me to all kinds of different music. And uh, he was into Van Morrison, and Frank Zappa and like all kinds of really cool, great, great stuff, you know? And that's where I, I, I got exposed to a lot of great music, but then my sister was really into metal. So like, and she would religiously buy Kerrang magazine and find out about all the coolest, you know, new bands that were coming out. So she knew about everybody before, you know, she was a big King's X fan. She was way into Metallica before anybody knew who Metallica was. And, um, you know, all kinds of cool music, really into Thin Lizzy, uh, and Ozzy and Sabbath and stuff. So, and, and my other friend that was into, like I say, Van Morrison Zap and stuff. He thought that stuff was garbage. So he was like always pulling, don't listen to that, you know, but like she was pulling my ear the other way. So I got equal dose of all of that. Ah, that's and good. Had, yeah. And then I had a love for it all. Now I, as a guitar player around that time, it was such an explosion of like rock guitar and technique and we had Eddie Van Halen and Ingve and all that. And so I was fascinated with, with, with those guys and what they were doing. And then the, the sort of disciples of them, you know, I was very, very influenced by that. And then, you know, 91, 92 happens, we get grunge, you know, and, and it all kind of became very not cool to play a solo. And, uh, I mean, you, I'm sure you remember around that time, if, if you did a session or something, you know, it was like, there was clearly a section that required something musical, but you know, no, no produce producer was like, can you just play the vocal melody? And can you put like a Leslie on it or something? And don't bend, like just go <laughs> play for me. Make it sound like anything but a guitar solo. I, I remember know? doing a session during that period of time where a guy came in, the guy, the producer, the guy who's producing the record came in and he grabbed the guitar and he tuned it to random pitches. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, and they were, they weren't in the cracks. They were just, but they were like random pitches and then he just handed me the guitar and he goes, I'm going to roll tape and you just do whatever. And then another time he, he taped all of the strings except for two and said, just do something on these two strings. I go, you know, you could have just said that. You didn't have to get, <laughs> you didn't have to get the tape out, pal. But <laughs> <laughs> Those are better examples than I can come up with. But little did he know that he was handing the guitar to you. And I bet whatever came out was exceptionally awesome. Well, we had a good time. The, the record turned out cool. Unfortunately, it was one of those things where it never got released, even though, yeah, you know, you know how it all is. Oh, but, uh, I want to hear that. If you if you can find the solos, I want to hear what you did. <laughs> that was the time, right? And so uh, what kind of saved my ass during those times, I feel like, was really the fact that I like I had that Beatles and uh, the who and beach boys and stuff to fall back on. And so I didn't really care that guitar, like I, I sort of, was, there was a part of me that agreed that there need to be a, uh, 
a reset and an adjustment. And what you had come out of that was Alice in Chains and, and Soundgarden and, you know, this great music that was way different lyrically, especially like, and, uh, you know, just that was, that was cool to me and it kind of needed to happen. And around that time, I was also really getting into singer songwriters. And I, so I, so I was listening to like Joni Mitchell and I was listening to Neil Young and listening to this kind of di this different music. It wasn't, you know, wasn't this sort of, you know, distorted guitar, rock and roll. It was something else. And I was really getting any, you know, having this ear for it and really enjoying it. And I started to realize these people are all Canadian. Neil uh -huh. and John. Yeah, absolutely. I, I like Sarah McLaughlin. I like like singer songwriters from Canada. I like like you know that was really sounding great to me. So um, so I, I did that for a while, and I got in actually a duo uh, with a, a singer songwriter, and we wrote some tunes and stuff. And I was having fun just making music with her and going out playing gigs on acoustic, and so it was cool through that era. And LA kind of you know it was like really dead for a little while around that time. The, the rock scene was just gone, but then it got really interesting. I remember like by the mid nineties to the late nineties, you know, you had, you know, Jane's addiction and like sort of, there was this different thing going on that club Rogies and Hollywood and stuff. And there was like this whole other kind of East Hollywood, different types of bands. And it was like wide open. Now you could do anything. It wasn't I, the one thing I remember why it needed to happen was the, the late eighties, early nineties, 90, when I got to LA, Sunset Strip was still in full force then. And the ads in the local rags would be like long hair guitar player, no, you know, like whatever, like wankers, you know, no GIT wannabes, you know, we're going to take it to the top. Like they were like very, it was like so um, segregated and it was very, you know, they wanted a certain look and it's, you had to be, you know, whatever, like you had to look like you were, you know, in, you know, I don't know, whatever, like firehouse or one of these bands, like <laughs> it was like, they wanted that. And, uh, and it was so restrictive. And, um, you know, so the fact that there was this explosion of different kind of creativity that came out of that later after it all went away, it was great. It was great. It was a good thing. Um, a little, a little depressing if you were an eighties rocker, I guess, but you know, but it all comes around. We interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle-infested conversation to give a special shout-out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Koch Signature Fluence Gristle Tone Pickup Set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. So what was what was kind of the uh, you know as far as gear and your guitars and that kind of stuff? How how did that morph over the years in terms of you know when you first went out there or what you were into when you were younger and then going forward? Well, <laughs> when I first came to LA, I was it's funny because I was talking to a lot about some of this stuff yesterday, like going back on my show. But it's like I had a <laughs> a twelve space rack that I brought from Canada. If you can believe this, to go to GIT as a student with no car, you know, I, I had a twelve space rack, two Mesa Boogie two twelves, and uh, the rack had a, a two ninety five power amp, one of those big four space tube jobs, and you know, like it was like there's no way like I'm lifting this thing on my own and going anywhere with it. But that's what I brought to LA, so it was insane. So I had to get rid of that stuff because it just wasn't practical. I ended up with um, a, a PV block logo 5150. I remember that first one that came out. It was a pretty good amp. Now it's a real coveted amp by the metal guys. But um, I had that and a 412, which was still a lot of stuff, but it was cool. I could carry that on my own. I got my car down to LA eventually. I lived in LA for the first year with no car. 
which is nuts. But then I, then I got a car out there and, uh, and I could throw that in the back seat of my car. I had a convertible. I remember I had to put the top down in order to get the 412 in the back seat. <laughs> <laughs> At least it never rains in LA. So, right, exactly. so you were good that way. It was all good. So, so I had that stuff and just a simple, God, I can't even remember what effects were. I think I had a Digitech thing in the loop with a bit of reverb and delay going or something, just, you know, silly stuff. Um, but I guess it sounded okay. I remember having a, uh, a Japan made strat that had a Floyd and two singles and it was just a good gigging rock and roll guitar, you know? And, uh, I, I used that. And then towards the, uh, mid nineties, late nineties, I started getting more sideman work and figuring out that I needed a little bit more sophisticated rig. So I ended up getting a, a rack done at, uh, it's a store making music on Lancashire in LA. Yeah. And a guy who's still a friend of mine to this day, Jamie Kime, he built that rack. I remember I had a little six space rack with a drawer with some pedals, GCX switcher, you know, and I had four or five pedals on a drawer, Rocktron Repliflex thing that was running in the loop. And by that point, I think I was just kind of using, I got Marshall DSL, one of the first ones, two channel Marshall. And, uh, and I was always a, a head and cabinet guy. I, I combos weren't, so much my deal. So, um, for whatever reason, I just like the closed back cabinet sound, but I remember like using that. And then I, I started getting into like top hat amps cause I met Brian Gerhardt from top hat and I got one of his uh, AC 30 style amps and then one of his Marshall style amps. So that was it. I had like that Marshall DSL 50 and a couple top hats and this little six space rack and a, you know, simple, uh, pedal rig with, you know, a couple overdrives and a delay and a fuzz and some stuff and a, and a switcher. Uh, to, to handle it all. And that's what I did a lot of work with through about 2001 or two. So, yeah. And, and then it all evolved from there. You know, it was like every few years, get some different stuff. You know? Yes. <laughs> as we do. Yeah. Yeah. That never changes. And it never changes. I, I hooked up with Gibson at some point in the late nineties. And so I do remember that, that primarily I started playing, um, as I started getting a little more success and doing some television and stuff, it was like always Gibson on TV. I was a Gibson guy for about 10 years before hooking up with Sir in the sort of 2007, eight, nine period. So uh, what, kind of, what kind of Gibsons did you fancy, pray tell? I have a, to this day, it was, uh, it's one of my main guitars, but it's a nice, just run of the mill. I think made in 2000 Les Paul Custom. Um, that was a great guitar. It ended up being my main guitar with Chris Cornell, really. Just a good, just a good solid custom that had a nice deep sound. It was it just rocked. I had a red SG, a um, couple of historic, an R7 and an R8, uh, historic Les Pauls. Really good guitars. Big necks on those guitars. That was the only thing, but they were cool. Uh, I got a uh, guitar. Uh, I have a number of these guitars still, so use them. Uh, the Pelham Blue uh, Dave Grohl signature. Oh, yeah. I got an early one of those around 2008, and uh, that's a fun guitar. And, oh, and I also bought a uh, my old 335, which is a guitar that a lot of people, you know, it's got fans. Like when I pull it out of my YouTube channel, ah, he's isn't that wild? I mean, the three thirty five. Like, oh, that's, know, that's my favorite. A, guitar I bought it for a couple brands. You know, when people say stuff like that, you're flattered, but you're like, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know what I mean? But I, but I guess, I guess I was kind of the same way. It's like you know when, you know, like when Roy Buchanan, you know, and he he, he played anything else but an old tell. You're like, yeah, I mean, the Les Pauls are cool and all, but yeah, you know what I mean. Just you know, when you when you're a fan of someone and they're playing a certain guitar, you're kind of yeah, I, I get it. But it's just at the same time, it's kind of wild. <laughs> 
It is. And maybe there's something we don't hear as we're playing the instrument or you can listen to it on playback, but it's like they hear it. And like that 335, I took it to a Melissa Etheridge rehearsal and played one song on it. I'd never taken it on the road because it's kind of delicate as a thin neck and it had a headstock repair. And so I was like, ah, I don't tour with this guitar, but I took it to a rehearsal one day, mistake or not. And I played one song. She turned around, looked at me. She goes, you got to bring that guitar on tour. Uh, and so it has that effect on people. There's something about it. About the, the 335s are like the underrated, I don't know, like like right. 59 Les Paul, yeah, whatever, like a 59 335 <laughs> or the air around the note and the amount of tone. Like the, the tonal, it's true, know, though. I mean, I, I, I remember would say, the majesty. first time I, I had a chance to kind of compare, uh, I was doing something like, and I may have been, it was out East somewhere and, and this guy in his, at a music store in his own personal collection, he had a, a real 57 gold top. And then he had like a, I don't know, maybe a 59 or a 60, uh, three And, and that was before I'd ever actually had a chance to play an old Les Paul. So I was just fascinated. And I remember playing it and I was just amazed at how bright it was. And then I grabbed the 335 in comparison, not having always played 335s, you know, since I was young, I was like, oh, well, this this is really my thing. You know what I mean? 330, as you said, there's just a little bit more air around the notes. It's not as quite as direct. But I do love Les Pauls as well. But it, it just was fascinating because, you know, what, you know, growing up as we did, you know, most of the Les Pauls we got our hands on when we were younger were the ones from the the 80s, which were, you know, really muddy and, and, and didn't do that kind of telly on steroids thing. So when you actually play an old one, it's like, what is this? <laughs> yeah, that was the moment when I realized that. It took a while, and then I realized, like, oh, my God. I actually used to have a, uh, like, in the 90s, I had a 54 P90 gold top, which I sold. Like, that's my biggest regret, like, a biggest dumb thing that I ever, because I got it so cheap. I was poor at the time, you know, and I had this 54 Les Paul. <laughs> like, what was it? I had no business having that guitar or selling it, that's for sure. And uh, I always regretted that because, you know, well, it's like, but anyways, they, they had that tone that I think uh, it was probably Gil Yaron said to me, you know, they weren't really trying to get a radically different sound from that when they invented the PAF. They just wanted it quiet. So the lineup was, it's really not that different. And, you know, Bonamassa and stuff, he, he's done, uh, you know, uh, some videos I've seen where he sort of says that like a P90 Les Paul totally gets you there. You know, it's not really that different than these other guitars that, and I, I, so it's fascinating, you know, cause the, the, uh, the things I've learned about pickups and what makes them tick and what makes those guitars sound the way they do, we kind of moved away from that. And also with the pots and, you know, you see a lot of those eighties Gibsons or nineties and they ended up with the 300 K pots and maybe the coils were exactly balanced in the pickups because they're more hum canceling and stuff, but it's just a darker kind of flatter sound when you get there. Well, and I think also is that people thought, you know, the higher output, the pickup, the better at, at that, in that era. And then what, and a lot of those old Lesters and, you know, just the idea of the old PFs were not really that high output. And they had that, you know, and whoever they, all the mythology of scatter wound this and this, that, and the next thing. But they are definitely brighter without, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. When you unbalance a coil, even like 5%, that was what blows my mind is like, oh, it just opens up. Like, it's right, a totally right, right. Because now you got the ones a little louder than the other and it has that sound that's... You know, uh, it's it's got this magic open thing that takes on a bit more single coil character. But um, that 
you know, yeah, they didn't. It's kind of interesting because I sort of have gravitated back around and now I like both things for different things. Like the, the like a super distortion was something I'd always shied away from because I always thought, oh, it's ceramic magnets. It's loud and it's just like whatever. But now I get it. And I'm and I like it is a great sound. It just is this one thing that it does. And it's one of the most hum canceling pickups I've ever tried because of the balanced metal in both coils the exactly the same pole pieces exactly the same wind and it does this thing into a marshal that's it's you know eddie van halen or, or uh, you know ace freely or whatever you know it's like it's a pretty magic thing in its own in its own way so i i've come to really appreciate like different guitars um like there's not one thing that i love that it's like you know, for this thing, you do this and for this thing, you do this. And sometimes a thin neck is cool. And sometimes a great big fat neck is cool. And it's all cool, you know, there, well, and that shows in your playing. That's what kind of what I was going to say is that like you, you just pick up something. Let's see what this thing does. And I love that about what you do. Cause like on my guitar or any, where you're like, let's explore the space of the, you know, go to this pickup and we'll pull this knob. Oh, and then you play something that just is, that's what I love. Um, because you have that thing. And you're just so adept at that. And it's like, uh, well, that's kind of what I try and do in my videos or like with Pat, like any, uh, for, for a while I, I, uh, I worked for Linda Perry um, and a producer and songwriter and did a bunch of sessions with her. And it was a really fun time because I am the kind of guy that can get like, I want this fret size with this neck and these pickups and this, I was, I have been that at times where it's gotta be a very specific thing, my rig, my stuff. Well, working for Linda, it's like, I used to bring my paddle board and an amp or two to sessions and I get to the studio hers, and there'd be 80 guitars out on stands, 25 bases and like a wall of amps and like every pedal under the sun. And you're like, why am I bringing anything here? Like there's so much stuff. And she really as a producer would enjoy saying, get the Fender 12 string, the 61 box AC 15 and pick one pedal and just come up with a part, just come up with a random rig, you know? And I go, and I, I got into that where it was like, yeah, tell me what hand it to me. Like, just give me the guitar with the sound or, you know, let's see what, oh, I would play this. And that's what, you know, I love when you do that. And it's, it's neat to just throw away all of your pretense or whatever about what you should be doing and uh, end up, you know, I don't know, get get the old, like a, you know, a 12 string with super high action or something and see what kind of, even if it's two notes you can play, maybe right, that's right, the right, right part. Well, talk a little bit about, you know, that aspect of things of, of, of you know, because sessions, because people are always, you know, you get younger guys, well, I always wanted to do sessions. And, you know, it's all about, you know, making the connection with someone who trusts you. Like you were saying, Linda was somebody who hired you to do those sessions because she knew that she could say that to you. No, I'll do this. But, but talk a little bit about establishing those kinds of relationships and, and just, you know, because I think a lot of people, I don't know. They like the idea of doing sessions. They think, oh, man, I'd like to do a session. But they realize, well, it's it's about, you know, making the connection and, and, and establishing that trust. So talk a little bit about your journey in that regard. With her in particular, um, and just about any producer, they want to be able to throw you a curveball maybe, or, you know, say like, this isn't working. She would just clearly, she's very direct in her style of production. She would say, what you're doing is not working. Come up with something else and then move on to the next person and say, okay, I like what you're doing, but the note in the, and you now, now you just got that thrown at you. Well, if you could do that and not take it as some sort of personal, you know, uh, affront or something and go, okay. And just drop the ego. That was the main thing. Just go, okay, uh, let's totally shift gears then. And, and if you could do that and not get thrown, 
that was developing the trust with her. And then you would come up with something else and try it. And it would either work or not. She said, mm, I don't know about that. Uh, and then maybe the third thing you do, oh yeah, that's cool. That's beautiful. Whatever. And, you know, you would get there. Or even if you, if you didn't come, she might go, you know what? Maybe I'm just not hearing guitar in this part of the song. Okay. And then getting through that process, if you could do that and not, not be, I always say, be a problem solved. Don't be a problem, be, be a problem solved, you know, just by not creating an issue or having a negative energy or getting your ego bruised or something by her asking you to do something different. Um, that was building that trust. Cause then she'd call you back. She's like, this guy can hang, he can hang with my, what I, you know, and he's a part of the team and he's not letting his ego get in the way. And that, that was one really cool thing that I guess I knew it before, but it was reaffirmed with the group of musicians she put together. It was a very safe space for everybody to once again, just explore the song. And, you know, if you were in it, like you jump on time and stuff, she'd take good care of you. There was always great food there at the studio and it was like a really nice hang. And when we went to work, we went to work and everybody just got in this flow. And if I got an idea about a drum fill, let's say, you know, like, Oh, you know what would be rad? Is it like it, this part, if you did like a triplet fill into something, I could say that to the drummer without him going, why are you telling me what to play? I could say it. And he would go, okay, let's try it. And then we would do it. And if it worked, it worked. And if it didn't, I'd say, ah, you know, it's a bad idea. I'm sorry. You know? And, and if it worked, it was like, damn, that is cool. That worked, you know? And then he would say to me, you know, Hey, what if you did a slide at the end of that, you know, like, and then we go into this thing and I'd go, okay. And I'd try it. And so the most, it was like a, a, a beauty contest or whatever. The, the best idea always floated to the top, you know, <laughs> you know, without any ego or any kind of anybody getting their, their, uh, whatever bruised, you know, by any of those comments. And so we'd end up having this great time and a really creative time making these tracks with this great energy. And, um, that, so what you just said about building the trust, that's what it was, was being a part of that. It's similar to being in a, a touring band, I guess, in a way, because, you know, you get in a, in a you know, the 50% of the gig. Like I always say, like, let's just get it, get it out of the way. You have to be able to play. You have to be able to learn the parts and have a good sound and all that. Okay, that's, that's a given. Now, what really gets you the gig and keeps you the gig is if you can hang and be a good part of that team, because nobody wants to spend their life traveling or being in a room, you know, you know, 24 seven with somebody that's difficult. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, no, nobody wants to do it. They just don't want to do it. Why? Well, you know, it's like, it's too short. So that's the thing is being that good hang is so important. So I guess that's what it is. It's, it's being a good hang, being, you know, an affable, nice person. That's a problem solved and being um, open to trying different things and not getting your ego bruised. And that's what'll keep you working. And, and you learn something every time that somebody goes, Hey, what if you did this thing? Or try something different and then you do it and you're like, I wouldn't have thought of that. Like now it's in my bag of tricks, you know? So you, you keep moving forward. Did you ever see, you ever meet musicians and it's like, they've got kind of, they're very set in their ways and stuff, but they're, they stay at a level, you know, they don't really, cause, cause they, the wall's up, you know, and letting that guard down and stuff is so important. I think to growing and, you know, evolving and, and, you know, and then you end up where you're supposed to be with the players that you want to play with, like with the, you know, you end up in, and you're like, oh, I feel so lucky. I'm in the room with this amazing, I'm, I'm the worst guy in the band. I always want to be the worst guy in the band. You know, then I, you, you always feel like you got to, you know, you know, now maybe, maybe I want to be the second worst guy in the band. Now I'm getting older. I don't want to work as hard as I used to, <laughs> <laughs> but I still, you know, always, I, I always feel lucky when I'm like, God, I can't believe I'm here. Like with these guys, like, this is so cool. You know, 
It's a glorious thing. So tell us a little bit about what's what's on the on the docket for you coming up. So obviously, you know, in this day and age, I mean, a lot of things are kind of slowing down again. It's what we thought it was opening up, and now everything's kind of you know because the uncertainty of uh, the cove and all the things. We just canceled a tour to Europe. I don't really have anything on the books until like. I think I got a New Year's Eve gig, <laughs> and that's about it, which I usually don't like to play on New Year's Eve, but they made, a, made me an offer I couldn't understand. So uh, other than that, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just hanging out on, on the home front. So, I mean, what, what, what kind of stuff you got lined up? Well, I've got a tour in the U.K. that, as far as I know, is full steam ahead um, in uh, January, February. It's this really fun thing that I did right before the lockdown. Uh, I got back February 2020. It was literally like... You know, two weeks later, L.A. was locked down and then the rest of the country followed. And um, it's a thing called the Classic Rock Show. And um, there's a there's an organization that, uh, well, okay, this group started as the Australian Pink Floyd many, many years ago. A great Pink Floyd kind of tribute, but on a very high level, uh, you know, production wise, with you know, sound video, you know, uh, you know, full on real immersive thing. Inflatable animals, the whole thing. <laughs> exactly. You know what I'm talking about. You painted a better picture than me. But yeah, so uh, so uh, it evolved from Australian Pink Floyd into the into Brit Floyd, this group. And I, I saw them many years ago play the, the Greek, and you know they'll play Red Rocks, and it's like great you know venues and stuff, and they put on a beautiful show. So. these folks branched out and started doing some different types of shows. And one of them is the classic rock show. And they've been doing it for almost 10 years now, I think. So they contacted me a few years ago and said, would you want to be a part of this and do it? And I thought about it and I thought, what's that like? You know? And then I thought, well, I saw Brit Floyd and that was really good. And it's the same people putting it on. So let's check it out. So I did it and man, was it fun. It was so much fun. It was theaters all over the UK and, you know, we you know, Wales, Scotland, like all over the place. It's about 30 shows every time they go on the road. And it's just a real fun show. That's a celebration of the who and Led Zeppelin, the Beatles and everybody under the sun, you know, so it's great video, great. And there's full, you know, great crew. It's great musicians. There's no egos because there's no rock stars. You know, everybody's just out there playing the music. And it's a really, really, really nice team. So um, anyway, did that right before the lockdown and really enjoyed it. And now they're back at it and doing it again. And they've had great success. Um, they've done some, they, they do they do a Fleetwood Mac thing and they also do Brit Floyd and they've done a couple tours and they've had no cancellations or issues with the way they're running the organization. So it feels really good, you know, in that regard. Um, so they've got a full tour book starting in uh, January, February. So as far as I know, unless something changes, we're going to... Uh, to, to head out and do that. So I'll look forward to, to heading over there and, you know, getting really immersed into the travel and the bus and the yes. <laughs> last couple of weeks was just a, uh, a teaser. Yeah. So looking forward to that. And then I've, I've got some new stuff that's happening, brewing with uh, some gear, some, some, some stuff I've been working on. So one I can talk about, which is a, I did a signature uh, package of speaker stuff with like impulse responses for two notes so um, that'll be coming out in uh, December, I do believe. And uh, so getting ready for that to come out. And uh, that, that's a fun thing because we went and took a bunch of our, it was Dave Friedman and I, he did his own pack and I did mine. We took a bunch of our favorite cabinets that were kind of unique, like stuff we've used on the, you know, that I've used on the road or in, in the studio with vintage speakers and stuff like that. And, you know, thought we'll do these cabs that are kind of unique and not just stuff that you can get. Uh, in the impulse response world that easily. So, um, so that's coming out. I'm excited about that. And then it's some more signature stuff that's coming like, 
you know, with, with, with gear. So I'm gearing, gearing, gearing up, no pun intended. Gearing up. But, uh, I see what you did there. I see what I did. God, that was awful. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. But no, it's all, it's all good. I'm looking forward to that. Um, you know, in the tour and then we'll see what happens. I've, I've, there's inquiries have been made of like, am I available for some different stuff later in the year, next year, touring wise and stuff. And I hope it all happens, but it's all so touch and go. Like you say. Yeah. One never knows by God, strange times, but you know, as I like to say, the, the old Mose Allison song, don't worry, nothing's going to be all right. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, what is that book, The, the Road Less Traveled? Life is difficult. And once you accept that life is difficult, exactly. it ceases to be so there difficult. There it is. Right? You just go with the damn flow is the bottom line. Yeah, life is a series of problems, and it, it's going to happen. There's going to be things that happen. You're going to get that parking ticket or whatever, and, you know, it's all about in how you deal with it. Well, listen, my friend, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us today. It was an absolute pleasure. I'm glad to be able to hang with you a little bit. And uh, hopefully one of these days we can hang out in person. Probably, well, I, who knows if Nam will ever? Well, I suppose it's supposed to happen next summer now. I guess, which is gonna, which is a downer because it's it was always nice uh, escaping the Wisconsin winter. Right, 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 right. right. <laughs> and coming out to Anaheim in Jan. It was a nice thing that split up the winter, and now yeah, that ain't happening. We could do a whole talk about that, like what will happen with Nam, but that's a, maybe for another time. But yeah, it's it's an interesting. Uh, <laughs> it's an interesting, I mean, we all love it. We all love that it, uh, uh is going to happen, but I'll never forget a guy in the industry, you know, that worked for a big company saying, well, let's get ready for the colossal waste of time, money and resources. That is Nam. here we go. You know, because it's like do with the internet and everything these days and now everything's right, you know, remote anyway, it's like, uh, and everybody's numbers were up. <laughs> so do we right. They sold more stuff than ever before with no name. They're kind of like, hmm. Yeah. Do we need to go do this? You know, but it would be such a shame. The hang is so, is so fun. You know, so I hope it happens for just for the selfish, you know, I want to hang. So, <laughs> yeah, it's always fun. You know, it's, that's one of the things, you know, you get Nam is always one of those things where, you know, I love to go and I love to get out. <laughs> It's fun going, you know, it's so many people are like, you know, why well, you come out to this tonight? You know, at the end of the show, you know, you're like by the end of the day, it's like, I want to eat as quickly as possible and go to bed. <laughs> if I hear one more guitar lick, I'm going to lose my mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But the hang, you know, you know, who turned my mind around on it. Just, just one more quick thing about it was Josh Smith, because he's such a positive guy. And you know, the cool thing in L.A. is to go, oh, Nam, you know, oh, you're going to go to Nam, oh, God, you know, like a lot of musicians. Just, and he's like, man, it's full of guitars and amps. I like all that stuff. All my friends are there. I go all four days. I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, was, there's that. Like, there's no doubt about it. It's fun to see all, you know, because that's, you know, all the different people, all you're traveling all over the world for so many years. What's the one place where they're all going to be or most of them? It's going to be at that damn thing. And so I agree. It's. It's good times. All right, my friend. Well, thank you so much. Take care of yourself and uh, hope to see you soon. It was an honor, man. Thank you so much for, for having me. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to Chewing the Gristle. We certainly do appreciate it. On behalf of Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, and our friends at Fishman Transducers, we say, don't be a stranger now. Keep on coming back. We're going to keep on giving her. <laughs>